Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130AE-58, Family Law, 7th Commandment, Genesis, Gen 4, verses 8-16. Our scripture is Genesis 4, verses 8-16, through 16, Family Law, Genesis 4, verses 8-16. through 16. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee your strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from the, thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Our concern this morning is with Genesis 4, 13 through 15 in particular. Our question with regard to these verses is to understand what is the law framework. Obviously, whenever God acts and speaks, he has reference to his total law framework. Of whom was Cain afraid here? Whom did he fear would kill him? And why did God protect a murderer? Was God acting contrary to his law? The question itself is absurd. Then what law did God have in mind when for the first and last time in scripture he protected a murderer? Or was he protecting the murderer? It is important for us to understand the significance of this passage so that we may understand more clearly God's law. Cain's fear was obviously not merely a psychological fear. Because we are told, God set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Obviously, then, Cain needed protection. Let us examine this text, then, very closely, the 14th verse in particular. Leupold, the Lutheran commentator, translates it very literally. Behold, thou hast this day driven me forth off the ground and I must stay hidden from thee, and I must be shifting and straying about in the earth, and it will happen 
that whoever finds me will slay me. Now, these words of Cain very obviously presuppose the fact that the death penalty for murder had from the beginning been made known to Adam and Eve and their family. That this death penalty for murder was God's purpose and was man's duty. As a result, Cain's words very obviously indicate he is in fear and in terror of both God and man, lest one or the other slay him, lest they execute upon him the death penalty for murder. So already a part of the all-revelation of God to mankind was the death penalty for murder. Of course, earlier in verses 9 through 12, God himself indicts Cain for murder. So obviously the penalty was known. And Cain saw a need to escape from both God and man. Then the first part of verse, or the second part of verse 15 reads, according to Leupold, And the Lord gave Cain a sign that whoever found him would not murder him. Now, this is important to understand because we tend too often to think because of our present-day meaning of Mark that it was a physical mark placed upon Cain. We can better translate it into modern English as a sign of guarantee. In other words, Cain was given by God an assurance a statement that made it clear to Cain that he would not be killed. Why did God do it? Cain, as we have seen, feared God and he feared man because God's law required death for murder. Cain was at this time a mature and married man, as the 17th verse makes clear. Adam had many sons and daughters during his 930 years, according to Genesis 5, verses 3 to 5. As a result, by the time of this murder of Abel by Cain, there was a sizable family. There were a fair number of men of varying ages already on earth. Thus, there were many men capable of enforcing the death penalty against Cain. Adam was the head, obviously, of a large household. And it was a family clearly geared to discipline and to a law order, ready to enforce its law. Both Cain and Abel were obviously hard-working men. Why, then, did God protect Cain? The first thing we must say is that protection for crime 
was obviously not God's purpose. Because from one end of scripture to the other, including this passage, God's hatred of sin is very clearly stated. God had no intention of protecting crime. God is always the enemy of sin. And sin is so fearful in the sight of God and his justice so unwavering that it required the death penalty, the cross of Christ, to make atonement for our sins. The question we need to ask, therefore, is this. What kind of law order was God protecting when he let Cain go free? Obviously, God was not violating law, his own nature, his own righteousness. He was maintaining it. Then what law order, what principle of law was God maintaining when he allowed Cain to go free? This is the key question. To understand the answer, let us Look again briefly at a law we considered some time ago. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, where in every juvenile delinquent had to be executed, every incorrigible delinquent and every incorrigible criminal. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. This law very clearly states that the death penalty is mandatory for incorrigible delinquents and therefore of all incorrigible criminals. In such a trial, the parents must be the complaining witnesses or among the complaining witnesses. The loyalty of the parents must be to the law order, God's law order, not to their child, or else they are accessories to the crime. The parents either stand with God's law order and become complaining witnesses against their son, or they themselves are accessories after the fact. This is why earlier in American law it is breaking down. This principle was applied to a great degree so that if the parents of a delinquent were not complaining witnesses, they were held accountable for the offenses of a delinquent child. But we see further in this passage, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, that contrary to the usual custom or law, rather, in this case, the parents do not assist in the execution. We shall come later on when we deal with the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, 
to the significance of the requirement that in the execution the witnesses assist. This is a fundamental part of biblical law. But in this case, the only exception, the parents are not to assist in the execution of the delinquent member. The family was thus excluded from the death penalty in any and every form. Now, Cain was obviously reared in a family which was a disciplined law order, as we have seen. Both he and his brother were disciplined, productive workers. Cain knew the death penalty and feared it, as we've seen. What the protection of Cain meant, therefore, was that the family was barred from the death penalty. This was the assurance that was given to Cain. A sign, a mark, a word of guarantee was given to Cain that no one would kill him. And what this obviously was was simply this, that God declared mankind still being one family, Adam and your brothers are forbidden, and I shall declare this word to them. They are forbidden to execute you because the death penalty is not a power or a jurisdiction of the family. We know that this word was given to Adam because Genesis 1 verse 1 through 5 verse 1 is the book of the generations of Adam. Or we can also translate it, the book of the family records as kept by Adam. So everything in the first four chapters to the first verse of the fifth chapter is Adam's own record. Adam therefore had from God the declaration to Cain and the declaration that they were not to touch him. The protection of Cain therefore meant that the family was barred from the death penalty. It is ironic that later on we are told in verse 17 that Cain built the first city. And the word for city is a walled habitation of men. A village was not walled. A city was walled to protect the inhabitants from others. Now, this point is significant. From whom was Cain protecting himself at this late date? Cain had departed from Adam and his brothers and moved far out. Cain was protecting himself not from the law-abiding household of Adam and his brothers who lived in terms of God's word, but from his own progeny, his own children and grandsons. Lamech's taunt song given later on in this chapter 
makes it clear that Lamech says, if anyone insults me, I will avenge myself upon them seventy and sevenfold. So that Cain, whom God protected by virtue of his law, that the family did not have the death penalty, had to protect himself ultimately from his own sons and grandsons because they were lawless. The point, therefore, of this passage and the question that comes to the minds of so many when they read this, why did God protect Cain, was simply this. God was really protecting not the murderer, but his own law order. The family can discipline, it can punish, it can cast out its members, it can disinherit them, but it cannot kill any member. At that point, the state as the ministry of justice must alone prevail. The family has real power. As we have seen, it can do much to separate its ungodly member from itself. But coercion is not the essence of the family. Coercion is basic to the state and its power to kill. But in family law, there is another factor. The husband cleaves to his wife in love. The children obey their parents as a religious duty. Basic to the family law is this inner bond of blood and faith. And the duty of gratitude towards one another. The word gratitude, incidentally, does not appear in the Bible. The biblical term is thankfulness. The scripture closely links God's authority and the parent's authority and speaks of the duty of children to be thankful to their parents and of all men to be thankful to God. This appears not only in the law as in Leviticus 19.3, but in Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10, which read, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work he hath no hands? Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the woman what hast thou brought forth? The same thought is expressed in Isaiah 10, verse 15. The idea of anyone being ungrateful to God or his parents is presented by Isaiah as the epitome of what is revolting and disgusting. The parents may not be lovable. There is no duty of love. But the duty of thankfulness and of honor or respect remains. The lack of gratitude by children who receive not only life but very generous and even wealthy provisions is very commonplace in this day and age and as 
repulsive in our age as it was in Isaiah's. Such children may lack other moral blemishes, but this is a very fearful one. The family tie is a deeply religious tie. According to Duyavert, the psychic structure of the family is, and I quote, the feeling of authority on the part of the parents, and on the other hand, the feeling of respect on the part of the children, unquote. Authority on the one hand, respect, which involves thankfulness, on the other. The absence of either authority or respect results in a serious breakdown of the family and of society. The family is not only a biological entity, but a religious one, and its inner ties are God-ordained and God-governed. The love may be absent, it may be undeserved, but the religious authority and the respect must remain. The significance of barring the family from the death penalty is very great. Had the death penalty been executed in this case, a precedent would have been set. The result for the world would have been anarchy. No state could have developed because every family would be its own law, executing its members and anyone who offended it from any other family. And you would have had then the anarchistic kind of world that the anarchists dream of, except the anarchists are especially insane. They deny both the state and the family, and theirs becomes an atomistic world. The development of the state as the ministry of justice was made possible when God set a mark of guarantee upon Cain, protecting him from the death penalty until a non-family law could take over until men had grown enough in population and numbers so that it would not be the family executing the criminal. God, therefore, in setting a mark upon Cain, in giving him a guarantee that he would not be killed, was protecting his own law order, protecting his righteousness. It is important, therefore, for us to understand the sign or guarantee given to Cain. It set a limit on the powers of the family and made it clear that the death penalty is always the jurisdiction of the state. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for this thy word. We thank thee that at all times we are surrounded by thy law order, that it is the very air of our spiritual existence. 
and that men can no longer live without thy law than they can live without air. We thank thee, our Father, that thy justice shall govern all of man's history. And we can therefore with confidence face tomorrow, knowing that thy justice shall prevail, that the ungodly shall perish in their ways, and thy word shall stand. Make us strong in thy word that we by thy grace may stand in the evil day and may prevail. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. We are not told specifically when the first state was established, but it very quickly does appear that there was law or progressively lawlessness. But there are various passages that do imply the existence of a law order. And when we come to Nimrod, uh, we know that not only was there a state, but there were tyrants. Because what is translated a mighty hunter before the Lord probably meant a mighty tyrant before the Lord, or against the law of God. So that by Nimrod's time and the founding of Assyria, the pre-flood Assyria, uh, or the post-flood Assyria, excuse me, there were very definitely tyrants. The state thus was very early created. Yes. Right. Even the ungodly state must, to a certain extent, abide by God's law or anarchy prevails. In other words, it cannot have total lawlessness, because if it does, it collapses. An interesting illustration of this is the Soviet Union. One of the first things it did after it gained power was to destroy the family. It nationalized women. It destroyed the family by placing babies in nurseries. It destroyed everything in the way of discipline and education. Well, what was the consequence? Well, first of all, the birth rate dropped alarmingly. Second, the uh, babies died in nurseries without a mother's care. And third, the children who were of sub-teen and teenage became roving wolf packs everywhere. And those of you who are old enough to remember reading the papers and the magazines of the 1920s and early 30s, remember that the wolf packs were a major problem in Soviet society. 
It was an anarchistic situation. So the only thing to save themselves from total collapse and also to have uh, a birth rate that would make possible a future for the country was to reinstitute strict laws of marriage, strict discipline in the schools. Out went John Dewey and everything that Dewey represented. They'd embraced Dewey at the beginning of the uh, 20s. They junked him in the 30s. In other words, while despising everything that God represents, they had to ball through the back door certain elements of godly discipline to prevent themselves from collapsing totally. So, to some extent, every state must adopt a certain amount of godly law order. Yes? Well, in no time at all, of course, with the rapid growth of the population, the families isolated and separated themselves so that third, fourth, fifth, sixth cousins no longer knew each other. It's the rare person who knows his third cousin today. So you can see how very quickly mankind became uh, diversified and uh, a state could develop, especially as some of these went off and lost association with the others. Yes? And there was what? Why was the death penalty even known if it could not be employed within a family relationship? Yes, God had made known his law, but he made known the fact that it was not as yet applicable only after the murder. In other words, here was a law which was to be a restraint. It failed to prove a restraining action on Cain, but consider how much more ready Cain would have been to commit murder had he been told in advance there would be no uh, death penalty executed immediately because of the family situation. God gave his law, then he added to it the fact of another law, the restraint upon the family. Yes? We are not told how Cain died, so we don't know. We simply don't know. We do know that he protected himself against his own progeny, which is a grim fact. Yes? When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he declares that it is not up to us as individuals to enforce the death penalty or to take the law into our own hands. It can only be fulfilled either directly by God or through the God-ordained channels. Now, the state 
is one means whereby God repays people, the death penalty. God has decreed it. Therefore, as we saw some months earlier, repeatedly, officials of state are called in scripture gods because, our Lord said, to them the word of God came, that is, the word of his justice, his vengeance, so that they act for God when they execute men. But when they fail, because ye have disobeyed, ye shall die like men. You too shall be executed. So that the state, when it operates faithfully in terms of God's law order, is executing the vengeance of God upon the murderer, upon the thief, upon every kind of wrongdoer. Similarly, in every law order, the vengeance of God operates. In the school, when there is discipline, in the family, each as it fulfills its purpose is fulfilling the vengeance of God upon evil. Yes? Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Yes. Yes. Now, that's a very good question and an important point. The offering of atonement was always a blood offering because the meaning of atonement is that the penalty for sin against God is death that ultimately Christ was to die for the sins of mankind. Now, an unbloody offering was a peace offering after, it was a communion offering, after the atonement. But Abel, when he brought the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, made an offering of atonement, but Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. In other words, he bypassed atonement. He said, I'm ready to make a gift to God if that's what he wants, but I don't need atonement. I'm all right as I am. In other words, Cain was essentially a humanist. He didn't need saving by God. That was the presupposition of his offering. Yes. Yes, humanism must be destroyed because the essence of humanism is the worship of man by man. And it is anti Christian to the core. Yes. not surprising. The humanists only differ in degree from the Marxists because Marxism is humanism. 
Our time is just about up, and it was suggested that I uh, touch briefly on the economic situation. As you know, there is a credit crunch underway, and this is a part of the whole inflationary cycle. As inflation progresses, the various countries put the brakes on for fear of runaway inflation. As a result, you have alternating credit crunches and inflationary booms. And as inflation proceeds, these become all the more frequent and drastic. Meanwhile, because everyone else is caught up in the inflationary cycle, they too are increasingly vulnerable because they operate increasingly in terms of debt or inflation. Now, earlier uh, work was written, I believe, uh, yes, in March of this year before the credit crunch began. J. Irving Weiss, The Money Squeeze. In this he saw the credit crunch which began in May very clearly. And he pointed out how serious the crisis is for American industry, in fact, industry all over the world. He gives a list of 25 major corporations and points out how limited their liquidity is, that is, how deeply in debt they are and how little operating cash they have. For example, Boeing, at the end of 1967, its net quick cash deficit in millions of dollars was 640. Days of bills covered by cash on hand, eight. Days it takes to turn over cash, eight. Days of elbow room left, zero. Ford, uh, in June of 1968, net quick cash deficit in millions of dollars, 1,880. Days of bills covered by cash on hand, 33. Days it takes to turn over cash, 25. Days of elbow room left, 8. General electric, end of 1967. Net quick cash deficit, 1,640 million, or a billion, it would be over a billion and a half. Days of bills covered by cash on hand, 15. Days it takes to turn over cash, 15. Days of elbow room left, zero. And I could go on and all of the figures, Kaiser Aluminum, General Motors, General Telephone, uh, Sears Roebuck, Shell, Standard, Teledyne, Xerox, uh, Polaroid, all of them are in very bad situation. Polaroid is somewhat better than most, quite a bit better. This means, of course, they're operating on uh, practically no margin. They have no liquidity. This is the same as saying for us that there is no cash in our pocket to deal with any crisis. We just barely have enough to pay our bills and have nothing left over, and if anything happens, we're in the soup. 
So this is the crisis that faces not only the various governments of the world, but industry as well. Then from the Cointact, uh, a newsletter on coins and monetary problems, May 69 issue. Uh, fine print on bank loan contracts now reads, quote, banks may call for repayment in silver or gold, unquote. And where are you going to get the silver or gold nowadays on a bank loan? Then you are told that there is so much gold being mined that what use is there for it? But, and I quote again from Cointact, Dr. Franz Pick reports that today industrial and commercial demand for gold is between 800 and 850 tons a year. That's almost equal to South Africa's annual production. In other words, virtually all the gold in the world today that South Africa, which produces most of it, has to go for industrial and commercial demands, which leaves practically nothing for monetary purposes. So don't believe what you're told about South Africa having a surplus, and any time it dumps this surplus on the world market, it's going to break the price of gold. Then this, the familiar Lincoln copper cent will be replaced by a more prolific non-strategic metal in the very near future. It now takes the intrinsic value of 42 sandwich type dimes, that is any dimes 1965 to date, to equal the price of a cup of coffee. That is as far as real value is concerned. And then this warning, if you're buying small silver bars, be careful. Lots of silver-plated bricks around and always at bargain prices. Yes. I, I can't hear. No, that order proved to be uh, an illusion. No, they allowed uh, one or two shipments to come through and then they stopped them on the grounds they were uh, counterfeit, supposedly. One man in this area ordered 70000 worth from Missouri Bank, certified uh, to be genuine. The Treasury seized them, claimed they were not that they were counterfeits. He took experts to Washington, has made three trips to my knowledge, and has not been able to get anywhere. Now, the strictest agency in the world, his Zurich Bank, certified them to be genuine. The experts have, but the Treasury has just seized them. So they're not coming in that way now. If 
there were any kind of demand, they would quickly disappear to the available supply. Yes. The price has gone back up quite a bit. It's just that there's not much purchasing now because of the credit crunch or the prices would skyrocket. One little question now. Uh, it seems quite likely that uh, Dr. Hans Senholtz will be here for the weekend of July the 26th uh, to hold a seminar at Knott's Berry Farm. And they'd like to know how many would be interested in attending. It would be $20 for the entire seminar. If there are any, raise your hands because I uh, was asked if I could check. What? Uh, no, it'll be two or three days. It, it isn't set up definitely. It might be Friday evening, morning and afternoon, Saturday, and possibly Sunday afternoon. It isn't certain as yet. But if you think you might be interested, uh, just let me know. A lecture and discussion. Yes, it will be on some aspect of inflation. And it will be practically oriented. Very good. Thank you. I think that's about it. So we are adjourned. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.